this morning is John chapter 11, verses 47 through 57. It's printed for you in your bulletin or on the app um, in the order of worship, or you can turn there in your Bibles. This is John chapter 11, verses 47 through 57. God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come, and they'll take away both our temple and our nation. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You don't realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with the disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that you've revealed to us to show us who you are, what you're about, and thus to show us who we are in you. So as we look at this passage this morning, open the eyes of our hearts, not just to see things that happened in history 2,000 years ago, but by your spirit, make it immediate for us this morning that we might see the glory of Jesus, the light in the darkness that we might cling to him and the salvation that he brings. pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know what it is, but there's something about us that loves courtroom dramas. And I don't mean court TV like Judge Judy or Divorce Court. I've talked about that before. We love that too, but I think for different reasons. Um, I think we like being judges. But anyway... We like courtroom dramas, Law and Order, To Kill a Mockingbird. I, I could keep listing movies and series that are huge hits. We love courtroom dramas. We love the, the drama, the suspense, the back and forth when the prosecuting attorney is asking the hard questions. You know, you can't handle the truth. We love that, right? The back and forth, wondering if justice is going to be done. Well, the Gospel of John is kind of like a courtroom drama, and Jesus is on trial. The first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John is a series of reported, uh, what John calls signs. It's these different scenes of Jesus' life where he is taking very specific actions. And, and, and these are specific actions that Jesus does to show who he is and what he's about. And so he does things like cleanses the temple, because uh, people had set up shop in the court of the Gentiles to take advantage of people. So Jesus cleanses the temple to show what he's about. 
Jesus heals to show what he's about. He brings life. He multiplies the bread to feed many to show what he's about. All these signs are indicators and pointers to who he is. And the courtroom drama, those are almost like uh, the, the scenes in the first 11 chapters are almost like different witnesses that are called to the stand. All right, what did Jesus do this time? What did he say? And the courtroom drama at the heart of the Gospel of John is this. Is Jesus who he says he is? Is he light that has come into the world? Is he the Son of God, God from God, sent to bring all God's lost children home? As Jesus heals, as he feeds, as he forgives, as he brings life, should what he says about himself be trusted? Now our passage today finds us in the terms of a courtroom drama after the, the attorneys have rested their cases, in a sense. We've gotten to the end of all these different scenes, the signs in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel writer, John, has rested his case. And the attention turns to the Sanhedrin, which is like the jury and the judge all wrapped up together. I'll talk about them a little bit more in a second. But in this passage, we see them what? Deliberate, in a sense. But this passage isn't just a courtroom drama that we watch. It's not like turning on an episode of Law and Order. It's one that we're drawn into. In other words, we aren't just reading this morning an interesting thing that happened once to some character. No, as we are encountered with God's Word in this passage this morning, we are faced with a deeper question. What are we going to do with Jesus? How will we respond? Will we allow our fear of what following Him could mean blind us to who He truly is? Or will we turn to Him and find grace to change us? Will we find light shining into our darkness? So to help us get our minds around this passage, I'll split it up into two. The first section is this, a growing darkness, a growing darkness. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, in fact, in chapter 1, verse 5, it describes Jesus as light that has shined into the world and darkness has not overcome it or darkness has not comprehended it. John uses a word in Greek that can mean either one. It can mean overcome or comprehend. And I think he uses that word on purpose. Because what we see as we go through John is that Jesus is light shining into darkness and the darkness is confused and tries to oppose him, but can't. The light is shining in the darkness and darkness is not comprehended or overcome. As the gospel goes on, that's exactly what we see. And we see that in our passage today. So what's happened immediately before our passage is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It was the last and the greatest of the signs that were presented at trial, more or less. It's the greatest sign of his power and his compassion that has happened. That is immediately what's before our passage here. And so stop and think. This happened two miles from Jerusalem in Bethany. It's a suburb of Jerusalem, less than two miles from the city. So they definitely know what happened. It's been reported to them. Lazarus was dead, and he was dead four days, and Jesus has raised him from the dead. Light has shined into darkness, the deepest darkness of death. And what do the leaders do here? They convene a special meeting, and they do not respond in joy or even amazement. They respond with fear. They respond with fear. All they can see is how Jesus might threaten their power. 
And so they call and convene a special meeting of the Sanhedrin. Here is them finally coming up with an official policy on how to oppose Jesus. Now it's hard for us to get our minds around how powerful the Sanhedrin actually was. In our terms, think of it this way. They were like the Supreme Court, so the highest court in the entire land for the Jewish people. They were like both houses of Congress, so they came up with laws. So they were judicial, legislative branch. And then they weren't just like a president, like an executive branch of government. They were like the Pope. They defined religious stuff. They were like the Pope for Roman Catholics. So they're like Supreme Court, Congress, and the Pope squeezed into one, uh, one body of people here. These are the main leaders, and what they say goes. They're the ultimate authority there. And here they, they, they convene this special meeting. Because this Jesus thing has gotten out of hand, and it requires an emergency response. It has to be dealt with right away. Look at verse 47 when they say, what are we accomplishing? What are we doing? Here's this man who's performing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. And what? The Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. Their words here reveal their hearts. Light has shone. God embodied, God in the flesh is in their midst, two miles down the road, has called somebody to life from death. And their decision is they've got to stop this because of what it might mean for them. They might lose their power. They might lose their temple and their nation, which really means we might lose the temple and the nation that we're in charge of. Their decision is rooted in fear of losing their power. And decisions that are rooted in fear of losing power always, always, always lead to injustice. The Sanhedrin here is fascinating. If you know the background, they work as a unit, but they were as divided as any political body that has ever existed. They were as divided as our House of Representatives <laughs> today. They had groups that were completely, had completely different ideas of what the biggest problems they faced were and what they needed to do about it. They couldn't agree on anything. But here, they work as one, as a unit, as a body. They put aside their differences for a common goal to get rid of Jesus. Now I want to say they aren't united by a desire to actually address the needs of their nation, the great needs of their nation. And these are needs that we've actually seen in the Gospel of John. All the signs that Jesus does in the Gospel of John happen in Jerusalem, happen in the, the capital city. When he's healing people, he's healing them in Jerusalem. When he goes to the poorest part of the city and helps the man who has not been able to walk for 38 years, it's happening in a slum in Jerusalem. But the Sanhedrin can't be bothered to get on the same page on how to address those actual needs what mobilizes them to overcome their differences and find a unity is an act of intense fear. Their fear has blinded them to Jesus, the light of the world, right in front of them. But then in verse 49, if we're reading through, verse 49, a lone voice speaks up. The most important voice in the gathering of the chief priest, the man named Caiaphas. And he says this, you know nothing at all. He says this in the sense of, you have no idea how serious this truly is. We've been, and what the, they've been doing so far, they have opposed Jesus for a while in John, 
but they've been content to kind of work behind the scenes. Um, they've wanted to see the, the public uh, opinion turn against Jesus. They were content to kind of like stoke the fires underneath, but not directly come after him. But Caiaphas saying, is saying, we have no idea how serious this is. We cannot keep playing around here. We have to take drastic measures. He's saying we have to act now. As he says, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die. He's the first person to say this out loud. One man die for the people than for the whole nation. Caiaphas is speaking and he's saying, we have to execute this guy. We have to do it. Too much is on the line. But he spoke more than he knew. He spoke more than he knew. That's what it means in verses 51 and 52 because what he said is in truth. In fact, true from one angle. What he said is actually a great summary of Jesus and his sacrificial love. Jesus who would voluntarily take the sentence the unjust sentence of death, so that he might give us life and bring us back to God. But where Caiaphas and where the Sanhedrin meant this for evil, they meant this for wickedness, a plot to murder Jesus. God worked within this wickedness to bend it back toward his good purposes. And that's something that God does over and over again. The first time we see it is in the book of Genesis, if you know the story of Joseph. He sold into slavery. By his jealous brothers, he faces injustice like three different huge times in his life. He finds himself in prison. But it's a long and winding road that leads him to being in a place of power where he is able to save <laughs> the entire nation in the midst of a famine. He's able to use his wisdom to set enough uh, food aside in a time of plenty knowing that a time of famine is coming. And when the famine comes, his wisdom is what leads to the saving of many. And years later, when Joseph is reflecting on this, the injustice that's done to him, he tells his brothers who are afraid that he is going to act in retribution, that he's going to get back at them. He tells them, no, what you meant for evil, notice he's able to say that it is evil that they have done to him. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God had worked within the wickedness that you planned bent it back for his purposes, for the salvation of him. But that's just the first time. God does this over and over again. We see it here. God's doing it again. He frustrates the plans of wickedness. He bends the violence and the wickedness to his purposes. Now, as I say that, we're talking about God's sovereignty, his ability to work in mysterious ways. But do not hear me say that this means that God approves of evil. He doesn't. He despises it. The proof of it is the extent he has gone to in Jesus Christ to enter into our world to undo its power. I'm not saying that God approves of evil. He doesn't. But in his power and in his intentions, he overcomes evil with good. He overcomes evil with good. He does not allow wickedness to go unaddressed. He does not allow it to have ultimacy. And that's what he does here in the case of the Sanhedrin. They were essentially going to put Jesus to death as a sacrifice to appease their true God, Caesar, the king of Rome. Because that's who ultimately won their heart. They feared Rome more than they feared God. But God works through this. Through this inconceivable injustice. And he makes this the place where all his lost children are brought home. He works through this act 
to be the way to forgive sin and to bind his people together. God would work through this ultimate act of injustice to undo all that had been lost, to remove every barrier that stood between him and the freedom that he has for his children. He would work through this rolling darkness to bring his cleansing light. And that brings me to my second section of cleansing light. And so, in the face of all this, Jesus knows it happens. Um, the Sanhedrin was big enough, they could not have met in secret. So Jesus found out this has happened. And he flees. We see that he runs to a town uh, called Ephraim. It was about 13 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Far enough away they couldn't actually get to him, but not too, too far away. Now he fled, and we may question, is there some fear here? And maybe there was. We'll be in a passage in a couple of weeks where Jesus realizes it's time that the opposition has reached its point and he is facing crucifixion. And in the midst of that, he is profoundly uh, in grief and, <laughs> and does not want to face what comes next. But he does anyway. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. So Jesus flees, but the point here isn't that I think he was in intense fear and needed to get out of town. It's in that he was in complete control of what was going on. And I think Jesus was actually doing something purposeful here based on what is said in verse 55. In verse 55, notice it speaks of people who go up to Jerusalem for ceremonial cleansing. They're preparing for Passover. And they think, I need to go up and I need to participate in this ceremonial, symbolic cleansing of myself to prepare myself for Passover. Now, the Jewish calendar at the time, and actually still today, Passover is like our equivalent to Easter. It's like a tentpole holiday in the Jewish calendar. And what it celebrated was the formative act when God had delivered the ancestors of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. When he had called them out and freed them and made them, bound them together as a nation, unlike all the nations of this world, his people. So that's what Passover was. And every year they would celebrate it. People would descend upon Jerusalem. And when they got there, they would be swept up into this grand story of the God who brings freedom in the face of slavery. The God who, who brings rescue into our world. And at the time of Jesus, Passover wasn't just the week of Passover. There would be a week before the week of Passover where people would say, okay, we're not going to approach this casually. We've got to be ready for Passover, so we need to cleanse ourselves. We've got to get ourselves ready to meet with God in Jerusalem. That's what's going on here. But notice something. Well, I'll get there in a second. But it's all of them preparing themselves to participate. Now this distinction, clean and unclean, if you've ever done the... Reading the Bible plan one year, you get to Leviticus and your eyes glaze over because all of a sudden it's talking about clean and unclean everything. It's talking about food. It's talking about blankets. It's talking about diseases. Clean and unclean everything. But this distinction was an important one in the Israelite religion. For thousands of years, they had practiced a religion that in the day-in, day-out practice of it was one that made distinctions. There were clean things and there were unclean things. And it wasn't just clean and unclean. It, it, it was like there were whole things and there were broken things. Those ideas kind of are married together in the clean, unclean distinction. 
It was driven by an understanding that God is holy and pure and he can't be approached casually. That he's perfect and whole and we have to reckon with that. That God is life and we cannot walk in the midst of this world that is so marked by death and disease and just walk into his presence. But our world's broken, right? It's stained. It's not the way it's created to be. And the marring of our world is something that has to be dealt with, removed, taken care of if we're going to approach God the way we were created to. So that seems to be the logic behind the clean-unclean distinction that goes throughout the Old Testament. It symbolically represents this. It's almost like a big object lesson in the lives of the people. That our world is marred. It's broken. It's stained. And that has to be dealt with if we're going to approach God. And so as you look through the things that are clean and unclean, it can almost seem arbitrary as you're looking through. It's like, okay, unclean pigs are unclean. All right. But this is clean. Um, but the logic behind it seems to be this. Things that are associated with disease or with death, those are unclean. So if you read through, it's not just food. It's uh, things like blankets that had developed a mold. Or a fungus. Those are unclean. They have to be dealt with. You can see how this would be practical, too. It's getting disease out of the house. This is unclean. We've got to clean it. Yeah. So things, you know, blankets that develop mold or fungus. Animals that were carnivores. So animals that fed off the death of another animal. Or birds that were scavengers. Those were unclean. But it's because it was associated with death. And blood. <clears throat> people with infectious diseases those were contact with any of those things would make you unclean ceremonial, symbolically unclean contact with any of those things would make you unclean and so if you were going to go from unclean to clean you had to go through these steps they were literal baths you would have to take these ritual baths to make you clean again to get the all clear for you to be able to go to the temple and participate and things that, like Passover, for instance. So as you can imagine, as I'm listing this, this was profoundly inconvenient. It meant you had to be mindful pretty much at all times over who you were talking to, where you were going, what was going on. And if you even walked in a house that had a blanket with fungus on it, you were then unclean. You had to go through it, and you're like, I just walked in for a minute. I think, actually, the past few years, we have gotten a very small picture of what that might feel like. Especially early on in the COVID pandemic when we didn't know how it traveled, we didn't know anything. Remember that we had to like clean our groceries before we're bathing in hand sanitizer. But we're constantly thinking, okay, where am I? Who am I around? Who have they been around? What is in this house? You know what I mean? Just that mindfulness. And it wore us down because we had to constantly kind of think about that. And it still is ongoing. But that's just a glimpse of how profoundly inconvenient this clean, unclean thing was in the Israelite religion. But I actually think that inconvenience was part of the point. It was a reminder. This world is broken. And this crowd who's going up for Passover is being reminded. This world is broken. And I am stained by how this world is broken. And if I'm going to approach God and dwell with Him, even symbolically for this week at Passover, i got to compare myself. It might feel like I'm belaboring the point, but I point all this out to point out what this text tells us. 
that all this preparation, this need to be cleansed, to approach God, Jesus doesn't do it. You notice? He removes himself when everybody else is going to Jerusalem to cleanse themselves, to prepare themselves. He doesn't go. Jesus didn't need to go. He did not need to cleanse himself to approach God, which is remarkable because it is not like Jesus had avoided things that would make him ceremonially unclean. He hadn't. You read through the Gospels, you see him constantly walking into death and disease. He's walking into homes where he should be made unclean. He's letting people touch him, and he is touching people that should make him unclean. Over and over again, he had been exposed in every way to unclean, to brokenness, to disease, and to death. But Jesus encounters unclean and unclean places, and instead of becoming unclean himself, he makes them clean. Instead of becoming unclean himself, when he touches this uncleanness, this brokenness, he is someone who walks into brokenness and makes it whole. Which means wherever Jesus goes, he prepares people to be ready to approach God. And whoever is with Jesus is ready to approach God. Because it is not Jesus who doesn't it's not just Jesus who doesn't go to prepare himself to ceremonially participate in Passover. It's also his disciples. They don't need to go either to prepare. Why? Because they're with Jesus. They're with Jesus. I'm pointing this out because it was not just true in this one instance 2,000 years ago. This is something true about who Jesus is for us. When we are joined to Jesus by faith, when we throw all our chips in on Jesus, when we're joined to him, what is true of him becomes true of us by grace. He is holy with no need to be cleansed. When we come to him, when we're joined to him by faith, we are made clean. We are set apart and being made holy. And we do not have to prepare ourselves to meet with God. I mean, take a bath maybe before you come to church. But I mean ceremonially and in your mind, when you get up on a Sunday morning, when you're thinking, I'm going to church on Saturday, you don't need to go through elaborate steps to say, I'm going to walk into that building and I'm going to hear the gospel. That's not the point. Jesus cleanses us. Jesus is our pathway to God now and forever. He is clean and holy. He makes us clean and holy and whole. And no matter how stained we may think we are, no matter what the effects of brokenness in this world have been on our bodies or on our hearts, they do not bar us from God, really or symbolically, because we are joined to Jesus. And that means for us our access to God is always secure. It's never in question. And we don't have to go through elaborate ceremonies to feel like we can approach Him. <laughs> When we mess up and mess up big time, I don't mean walk into a room with molding blankets. I mean when we act in profound selfishness and it has preposterous fallout for our lives and other people's lives, we don't have to do an elaborate step of preparation to then be back right with God. We turn to Jesus and we find forgiveness right away. 
We don't have to belabor the point. We don't have to show God that we feel really, really bad. We don't. Our access to God in Jesus is always secure. So stop trying to cleanse yourself. When you mess up, stop trying to cleanse yourself. You can't. And you don't need to. It is Jesus who washes you. And not just once at your baptism, whenever that happened, if you were a kid, if you were an adult. That washing spills out over your whole life. It becomes the shadow that your life is lived under. You are one who is cleansed by God. You don't need to cleanse yourself. That's the great tragedy of this passage. The people who should have seen who Jesus was and celebrated his arrival, they're the ones that actually lead to his death. They're the ones that oppose him fiercely. They're the ones, as it says in verse 57, give orders that anybody who finds out where Jesus is is to report it, not so they can know where Jesus is and flee to him for his grace, but so they can arrest him. But I want to point out as we're closing our time that Jesus knew all of this. He was not foolish. He was not blind and ignorant in the midst of it. He knew all of this. He knew what was going on. He knew the rejection that he had already faced and that he would face. He knew this growing darkness and what it meant for him to walk into it. He knew the intentions of the Sanhedrin and he walked directly into all of it to face it down. To shine his light into our darkness. To bend what men meant for evil for good for us. And not just in this passage, in our lives as well. There is no darkness in you, in your experience, in our world, that Jesus will not shine his cleansing light into. There is no sin too big in your heart or in your past or even in your future that Jesus will not shine his cleansing light into. There's no intentions or abuse against you of other people that is so powerful and dark that Jesus will not shine his cleansing light. And we may only feel... Uh, touches of the healing that he will bring. But we have assurance that God will not rest until that darkness is driven out. God will not stop until all things about you and the world which we inhabit together are made new. All those barriers, all, those, all that darkness, all that darkness he will shine his light. In every way, Jesus makes this claim. Not just symbolically. Not just symbolically. Really. Really. Now, as I said at the beginning of this sermon, the Gospel of John is like this courtroom drama. We've been shown who Jesus is in the first 11 chapters through his actions. We're going to see more who Jesus is in the next few chapters as we go through them together this spring. But the question at the heart is this. With a clear display of who Jesus is and what he's about, how will we respond? The Jesus who has come to cleanse us, will we continue to hold on to this idea that we can really better ourselves or prepare ourselves to meet with God, that we might need to cleanse ourselves, that our confidence rests in our own good deeds? That's really just being controlled by fear in a different way, just like the Sanhedrin. 
We don't have to obsess about the power of sin and the here and now and its ability to keep us separated from God. It cannot. It cannot. It may feel like it can. Sin may feel like the most powerful thing in the world. And you may keep falling back into the ruts over and over again, doing the same foolish things over and over again, and praying for forgiveness for the same things over and over again. But no matter how strong that sin and its mastery over you may feel, it cannot stand. It cannot. It may feel powerful today, but it has an end date. It has an end date. The light of Jesus will drive it out. So this is Jesus. He's come to cleanse us. He's come to free us. We don't have to be controlled by fear. We don't have to obsess over power of sin and its ability to keep us separated from him. Stop giving your sin more power power than it actually has. His love for you is more powerful. Open your eyes to who he is. Open your ears to hear his gospel. And open your hearts to receive him. No matter if it's the first time and you never believed in Jesus before, if it is, believe in him today. Today is the perfect day to find his grace for your salvation. Or maybe you believed when you were three years old, (laughs) and that was decades upon decades ago. Come to him again because his love for you has not changed. Come to Jesus. See him for who he is. And toss off everything else because it can't do anything for you. Fix your heart on him and receive him and know his cleansing power. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truths of the gospel. I thank you that in Jesus you have walked into the darkness of this world and you have shined your light, you have shown your purposes and your intentions to us to free us, to cleanse us, to redeem us from darkness, to shine your light here this morning. Shine your light through the words that have been spoken. Shine your light through the Lord's table as we come to, uh, to, to feed and be nourished on who you are. And point us to yourself. Transform us, Lord. Make us new. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.